This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, January 12th. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Avalanche Watchers issue warning. Telluride looks to bring equity and inclusion to boards and commissions. Smart passes its 2024 budget. And a mountain weather forecast. With a holiday weekend ahead and the ski season in full swing, conditions in the backcountry are changing. We're in the middle of a a pretty big transition. Uh, It's been a pretty dry year and we've had fairly low avalanche danger um, during a period that's that's often dangerous for us, the, the last holiday kind of between Christmas and uh, New Year. That's Ethan Green, director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, speaking at a press conference on Thursday. If avalanche risk has been low thus far in the Rocky Mountains, the CAIC is warning the new snow falling this weekend will lead to a marked increase in avalanche danger. Looking back on a dry winter, Green explains. These long dry periods, um, they cause the snow to actually change physically and creates a very weak structure. While that's sitting on the surface, that's not that big of a deal, which is why we saw low danger last week. But when you start to pile snow onto that weak snow that formed on the old surface, that's a recipe for avalanches. And the more snow and the faster you pile it on, uh, the more dangerous that's gonna be. And that is exactly why we're seeing what we're seeing today and why we're warning people about increasing danger into the weekend. It's still unclear how much snow and how much danger will accumulate here in the San Juans, but local CAIC forecaster Jeff Davis, in an update provided to Kodo on Friday, reports avalanche danger is likely to increase to high in the San Juans by Sunday, with the risk continuing into early next week. The risk in our region is currently listed as considerable, but... With the potential for a foot of additional snow accumulation throughout the weekend, accompanied by high winds, the storm is still in its early stages. Green doesn't say to avoid the backcountry. There's all this potential new snow, he says. Which uh, could be fun for a lot of people. We'll have some much better conditions in the mountains, but also some dangerous avalanche conditions. And so we want to kind of balance that so that people can get out and enjoy uh, recreation in the mountains, but also do it safely. In anticipation, the CAIC has issued a special avalanche advisory for the entirety of the state. Their hopes for anyone heading into the backcountry this weekend? Make a plan that uh, keeps people, keeps yourself out of avalanche hazard. And um, if you're going into uh, the mountains, make sure that you have avalanche rescue equipment, That's an avalanche rescue transceiver, a probe pole, and a shovel. Additionally, check those latest forecasts at avalanche.state.co.us. They'll be updated in accordance with snowfall, wind conditions, and avalanche risk throughout the weekend and winter. The town of Telluride is looking to change eligibility and makeup of its boards and commissions. One of council's goals and objectives is to preserve community through promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. And part of that is trying to find ways where our on our town's boards and commissions, we can expand membership eligibility and try to build more inclusive and diverse boards and commissions. That's Telluride Town Clerk Tiffany Cavanaugh presenting at a town council meeting this week. 
Telluride has a number of boards and commissions to help make decisions in the town. The Commission for Community Assistance, Arts and Special Events, Parks and Recreation, Historic and Architectural Review Commission, the Ecology Commission, to name a few. With the goal of bringing more equity and diversity to those boards, Kavanaugh reiterates several points of discussion from a December town council meeting. Town council agreed to amend eligibility requirement for boards and commissions from requiring that only qualified electors serve on these boards and commissions to that they're a town resident and have lived in the town or the county for a specific amount of time before being eligible to apply. So we're removing that qualified elector piece. Council also agreed to remove town council members as voting members of boards, shifting them to liaison positions. It also decided to remove dedicated seats from boards and commissions and make them public at large. Going forward, any board or commission member who misses five or more meetings a year will be automatically removed from the board, and council agreed to reduce the size on several boards the Ecology Commission, Public Art, and CASE. The Open Space Commission will remain with seven members, however, will shift to five regular seats and two alternates. All boards will be allowed two county residents to serve. Finally, term limits. Council agreed to impose term limits on all boards and commissions, eight years, which would be um, four two-year terms, except the one item that was not agreed upon was term limits for HARC and PNZ. HARC is the Historic and Architectural Review Commission. PNZ is planning and zoning. Those boards, Kavanaugh notes, are not able to expand their eligibility. Our charter requires that HARC and PNZ members be registered electors of the town of Telluride, so that limits the pool of candidates that could serve on those commissions. Kavanaugh adds that with the inclusion of term limits, individuals would not be barred from ever serving again. They would simply need to sit a term, or two years, out before reapplying. While council was torn, it ultimately moved toward excluding HARC and PNZ from the term limits. Here's council member Mian Fee. Due to the professional certifications that are needed to make educated decisions on those boards, I feel that a special ex exception needs to be made. When it comes to implementing term limits, Kavanaugh lays out several options. A commissioner already exceeding eight years could immediately be removed from the commission. The term limits could apply going forward with the eight-year clock setting once the ordinance is passed. Council could split it and count four years towards the term limit, giving commissioners another four years. Or council could allow commissioners to complete their current term and then be unable to reapply if they've hit their term limit. Council was once again torn on the best way to implement term limits. Councilmember Ellen Eleven advocates for allowing commissioners to complete the remainder of their term and then be termed out. The vast majority of people serving on these boards haven't actually hit the term limits. And what we're really trying to target is the people who have. And the whole idea of this conversation is to keep certain people from kind of hoarding power and not sharing power. So there are going to be a lot of people who haven't hit that eight years. And if they have hit it that eight years, then the whole point of this conversation is how do we give other people an opportunity to um, have that position of power? How do we you know, increase our diversity and our, our reach of who is involved in these? The remainder of council ultimately agreed, but chose to exempt alternate seats from the term limits. 
Council member Ashley Von Sprecken wants to see alternate seats as a training ground. You should be allowed to sit as that alternate seat and it won't count against your term limit. And then once you start in a full seat, then that's when your term time would start ticking. Because I think that we need to have the level of mentorship there as well, that you work as an alternate for a term or two and then you move up onto the board. And that way you have the knowledge and things that when you're going to make those decisions. In the end, Town Council unanimously voted to expand eligibility for boards and commission, reduce the signs of several, and implement term limits of eight years, with the exception of alternate seats and those sitting on HARC and PNZ. Town Council still needs to vote on the ordinance on second reading. It plans to do so at its January 30th meeting. Like all organizations and governments, the San Miguel Authority for Regional Transportation recently passed its 2024 budget. Smart Executive Director David Averill stopped by Codo to chat about what's in the budget and highlights for the year and years to come. He starts with expanded service for 2024. If you've looked at the budget document, you might notice that there's a line item for a new service um, from Montrose to Telluride and back. Um, so that'd be a new commuter type of service um, that we are hoping to launch here in just in the next few months. Um, I think that's something, you know, that the community has been asking for for a long time. Um, it was one of the top priorities in our strategic operating plan that we did five years ago now. Um, and it was really just a matter of rounding up buses for it and setting aside that operating funding. So we have the operating funding in the budget. And I think um, just as a note on that, um, including in the, included in that bus order, uh, were three new buses for the Norwood service. I think you're going to be super, super psyched on them. They're pretty cool. Um, and they're nicer than the old ones by, by a long shot. So hopefully that all works out good. When you think about the budget kind of being a roadmap for the priorities of an organization, right? It's what mm -hmm. you're putting value in. How does that look for SMART? You know, where are, where do you see the priorities for the organization through what y'all are spending money on this year and maybe into the years to come? Sure. As well? I well, I think, you know, the, the Montrose route is a prime example, just provide more service and not necessarily put all the money into capital and all that kind of stuff. So we've always tried to uh, maintain this balance of expanding services um, in a reasonable and sustainable way, um, but at the same time address the capital needs that a small frankly new still, a uh, little transit agency needs. And so that's the other part of the budget that doesn't get as much um, attention because buying buses and vans and stuff like that just isn't as exciting for the general public as, to, you know, as opposed to like, oh, a new route. So on the capital side of the capital spending plan for this next year, there's money in there for the buses, uh, six new minivans for the van pool, uh, two smaller buses uh, that are replacement. One's a replacement and one is an ex another vehicle for the fleet for the off-season and um, Lawson Hill services. But as far as expressions of values, there's those two things, new service, taking care of our house with the uh, capital expenditures. And then I think um, there's another line item in there that I I hesitate to talk about too much because it's a little bit nebulous as as to what we're going to do yet. But we did set some side set aside some money for a special project um, to potentially lead uh, that I would right now I would, I would loosely call it <laughs> an, an East End mobility visioning plan. Uh, and really kind of buckle down and take a hard look at, you know, what type of potential high capacity transit needs might we need, say, between Lawson Hill and the town of Telluride as the spur develops more congestion. But that's sort of a longer term visioning exercise, you know, like a 2050 type of plan kind of thing. But the, the point of going through it, though, is to get everybody sort of on the same page as far as like what that ultimate vision might look like. But we'll see where that goes.
obviously people, when they think about these sorts of things, they think about how does it impact their own pocketbook. Um, So in terms of fares, anything like that, is there anything that's going to be shifting in the next year? No. um, To be fair, we are having a conversation about fare structure um, through a, a current planning effort that we have going on. It's a second iteration of a strategic operating plan for the bus service. Um, and while we're on that topic, I should plug that there's a community survey available right now on the SMART website. Um, that is one of our input mechanisms for that for that process. So please, if you haven't already filled out that survey, um, I think it takes about three minutes. Um, take a look at it and get us a result if you can. Um, but uh, we are having a fair structure conversation in the strategic operating plan. One of the things that's on the table is to potentially go fare free for more of the services that we provide um, in addition to the Lawson Hill and the off-season service being free. So there's a conversation about that. Um, again, you know, um, what would the bottom line look like for Smart if we did that? Um, how much more ridership do we stand to gain if we do that? That kind of thing. We can't, you know, leave out a conversation regarding the gondola, oh, that which, thing. you know, that little thing, <laughs> <laughs> which Smart recently it kind of took the gondola project a little bit under its own sure. wing. Obviously, it's a very um, regional, multi-jurisdictional yeah. conversation, but it's kind of coming under Smart's purview. Yep. Can you just talk a little bit about what that means for for Smart and kind of for how gondola planning moves forward? Yeah, so. You know, I think people that have been paying attention know that there's a conversation going on about the gondola. Uh, the primary mission being that we need to figure out a long-term funding source for the operations after 2027 when the, the current funding agreement sunsets, if you will. The second p- part of that conversation, and it's just about as important as the primary objective, is to figure out a way to plan for ultimately replacing the gondola at some point. It's like any other transportation asset, just like a bus. At some point, it needs... It needs, it needs to be replaced. And so um, those, those are kind of what's driving the conversation. Uh, as you mentioned, um, SMART did agree to take on the lead role in that. It makes a lot of sense for us as a regional transportation authority um, to play that role. I think some people would argue that SMART was created to take on that role ultimately at some point, you know, and so it came as no surprise to me that the request was there. Um, I think that what you'll see hopefully is not too much of drastic change in the process. You know, I think um, you'll just probably hear more about it, frankly. Um, And part of that will be because part of that conversation is um, to prepare for an eventual ballot initiative in, in November of this year of 2024 um, to um, come up with that operating and maintenance revenue, that long-term solution. Well, David, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Stay safe out there. Roads are bad. That was Smart Executive Director David Averill. Smart Strategic Operating Survey is available online at smarttelluride.colorado.gov. Hop in your hybrid vehicle and head to Mountain Village for a climate action road mapping workshop. Next week, the town is holding a collaborative public meeting to map out the implementation of its climate action plan. Town officials and staff, alongside Cascadia Consulting, a planning firm advising the town on its CAP, are hoping to gather public input and expertise as they take steps to reduce emissions. Following the workshop, Cascadia and the town will write out a draft roadmap to be discussed at their February 15th meeting. 
Mountain Village Sustainability Director J.D. Wise says the workshop is a chance for the public to learn about the town's priorities and for the town to hear from its constituents. The workshop will be held Wednesday, January 17th from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. in the Mountain Village Town Council Chambers and on Zoom. Find out more at townofmountainvillage.com. You might call it the Winter Rodeo. Ski Juring is back this weekend. The 2024 San Juan Ski Juring kicked off on Friday with festivities continuing on Saturday, January 13th and Sunday, January 14th. Competition starts at 10.30 a.m. this weekend with the Pro Gap Jump starting at 2 p.m. There will also be music from Jake Jacobson at the Event Center on Saturday night. Events will take place at the Ure County Fairgrounds in Ridgeway. A report released this week shows annual average temperatures in Colorado warmed by 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit from 1980 to 2022. Becky Bollinger, the state's assistant climatologist and co-author of the climate report, says while precipitation trends remain uncertain, warming temperatures will likely lead to less water. Those warming temperatures are going to kind of reduce the efficiency of that system to make snowpack into uh, stream flow runoff and available water supply for us. And so we've already seen reductions in stream flow, and that is something that is expected to continue. We will see more reductions because we are losing more of our water to the atmosphere and less of it is staying uh, on our surface for us to use. The report also outlines how heat waves have increased in frequency in the state. In addition, Bollinger says they're getting hotter and it's going to continue later into the season. And this is something that we've been experiencing, uh, particularly in the past few years where we're still having summer-like temperatures extending into September and October. The heat waves themselves have become more intense. This is the third edition of the Climate Change in Colorado report, and it can be viewed online at climatechange.colostate.edu. The state legislature reconvened on Wednesday, and by Friday, lawmakers had already introduced over 130 bills. KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reports one of them is a controversial response to the opioid crisis that failed to pass last year. The bill would allow cities to open overdose prevention centers or safe use sites. These facilities give people using illicit drugs a designated place to do it and supervision from healthcare professionals to avoid deadly overdoses. The sites would not provide drugs. The bill's sponsors ran the same measure last year, but it was ultimately rejected. They're still moving forward despite a lack of support from the Interim Legislative Committee on Substance Use. Safe use sites are already operating in New York City and are legal in Rhode Island. The governors of California and Vermont vetoed similar policies in their states last year. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods at the State Capitol. Last Saturday, 1,000 people crowded into the Orpheum Theater in Flagstaff, Arizona, to remember Diné activist Klee Benali. In his 48 years, Benali channeled his creative energy into films, music, and writing. 
For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has this remembrance. Poets, musicians, activists, and colleagues took the stage on Saturday in Flagstaff. I worked with Clee very closely on fighting the Grand Canyon uranium mine. Leona Morgan, a Diné activist and longtime friend of Klee Banali, is one of the dozens of speakers. I have so many banners that Klee painted that I take around the world fighting nuclear colonialism. His last request to everyone was to put their bodies on the line in front of the trucks, in front of the machinery. And I'll be honest, I don't think I can do that, but... When he died on December 30th of last year, Benali was actively working on many creative projects. During his life, he led public demonstrations, engaged in civil disobedience, and he often expressed his beliefs with guitar in hand. In a 2013 music video for Song of the Sun, Banali stomps in the dirt and rocks his acoustic guitar in front of Red Butte, a site of a proposed uranium mine in Arizona. But music was just one channel Klee Banali used to champion environmental justice and tribal sovereignty. He was prolific on social media as a tool for agitation, organizing, and reaching audiences. He led efforts to help the unhoused in Flagstaff. And in one instance, Banali chained himself to earth-moving equipment, part of a long campaign to protest a ski resort's use of wastewater to make snow on sacred mountains. Within his 48 years, he was able to live many lifetimes. He was doing the work of four to five people at once. Morningstar Galley is an activist in Flagstaff who helped organize the celebration of life on Saturday. He was doing performance art and art shows and making jewelry and making music and writing his book and working on his video projects, countless, countless projects that he was so dedicated to. In recent years, Benali had some health issues, and he was in and out of the hospital late last year. But he still managed to publish a new book called No Spiritual Surrender. And he even designed a board game called Burn the Fort, raising funds through a Kickstarter campaign. Colonizers have built a military fortress and are waging a brutal invasion of your lands. In the game, white settlers are the villains. Players assume the role of historic indigenous warriors battling to stop colonial invaders. Can you prevent their wagons from bringing supplies to the fort and burn it to the ground before the train reaches the golden spike? Benali released the first edition of the game just a few weeks before he died. In his health condition, Klee was working pretty much around the clock. Leona Morgan says Benali used every minute of the time he had in this life. When we would have meetings, he just had this urgency. I think he was aware of his own time because 
the amount of work that he put out this year is just incredible. With his passing, Klee Benali joins the ancestors, generations of indigenous activists who have fought for sovereignty and human rights across North America. But inside the realm of social media, his spirit lives on. It was the word she didn't say She sang the sun down every day In a video from 2019, Benali appears in what looks like his home studio. He performs a song called She Was a Mountain that honors Navajo matriarchs who resisted relocation on Black Mesa in the 1970s. The song could just as easily be about Klee Benali, his sense of truth and justice, his fierce activism. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for clouds tonight with wind gusts as high as 40 miles per hour and a low in the mid-teens. Snow showers are possible with accumulation between 2 and 4 inches. Scattered snow showers and wind will linger Saturday when the high is in the low 20s and Saturday night brings a low near 20 degrees and a 90% chance of snow. Expect accumulation of 3 to 7 inches. Snow heavy at time will continue Sunday and into Sunday night. The high is near 25 degrees with a low around 10. This has been the news for Friday, January 12th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.